I'm John LaBelle, your host, and you'll find us here on the Progressive (coughs) Radio Network at prn.fm every Monday at 10 a.m. That's 10 a.m. New York time. You'll have to figure out what time it is in your part of the world since we're global. And you can catch our back shows, including this one later, on visionaries.podbean.com. And our guest today is John David Ebert. John, are you there? I am, yes, indeed so. Great, fantastic. And uh, I've interviewed uh, Ebert previously, so when you go back and look at our archived shows, you can find him. And John David Ebert is a new kind of public intellectual. So, John, tell us what you do and how you do it. Yes, I am a public intellectual. Um, I'm a uh, kind of a bit of a philosopher and a cultural critic as well. Um, I've, basically what I've done, if I had to boil it down, what I've done is to synthesize uh, three different areas. One, comparative mythology, under the, uh, largely under the direction of Joseph Campbell. I came out of that background. And then also that with media studies, uh, largely under the influence there, of course, of Marshall McLuhan. So there's that background. And then French postmodern uh, philosophy and, uh, well, not just French, but also German idealism uh, from Kant through Heidegger, let's say, along with uh, French postmodern thinking. So I've taken those three areas uh, and synthesized all three of them and put them all together to become a kind of modern uh, public intellectual or global intellectual, let's say, if we wanted to be uh, presumptuous about it. And um, which is a relatively rare combination to, to come into this public forum with those with the facility and those three backgrounds. And so I've tried to use those areas uh, and ideas uh, to understand the semiotics the, of, of uh, culture as it's going on today. Interesting. Well, um, I'd like you to talk a little bit about how you do this when in the 1940s one would have uh, hoped to break into the partisan review set. In the 1960s, one would want to be published in New York Review of Books. Uh, I eventually got some articles in the Village Voice and and Art Forum. Uh, What is, and, and and I used to be a real big fan of New York Review of Books. If I saw it on the newsstand and I saw Susan Sontag, I'd immediately pick it up. And today, if I subscribe to it, I'll get it for a year and won't read a single article. Uh, so what, where, where, where do you guys hang out today? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I had a similar experience. I mean, I came, I had the experience of coming late to the party. Okay, I didn't come out of the East Coast. I came out of the Southwest. The Southwest is already, in a certain sense, isolated. It's taken us forever, for example, in the Southwest to generate a single great novelist. I remember Larry McMurtry saying in his uh, book of essays about Walter Benjamin at the Dairy Queen that, uh, so far as he could tell, the Southwest had never produced a great novel. Uh, That was before Cormac McCarthy, of course. When Cormac McCarthy wrote Blood Meridian, he moved from uh, the Appalachian region. Uh, He started out becoming a Southern writer and moved to the Southwest to do research research for Blood Meridian. And and since then, he's created a whole series of great uh, Southwestern novels. So 
the Southwest has always been a bit out of the loop uh, in, in that sense anyway. But uh, I came into maturity in the late 90s, uh, working as an editor for the Joseph Campbell Foundation. Uh, but I could already tell, you know, I got a few articles published, like you say, in the Antioch Review. I started uh, having cool. an article published in that. Um, but I found a lot of cultural cognitive dissonance in, this, in the sense that I was also interested in kind of new age thinking. Uh, Joseph Campbell was giving lectures out at Esalen in the last uh, decade or so of his life. I was very interested in that world out there with Aldous Huxley, Terence McKenna, Stanislav Grof, and all those guys. So I was interested in the counterculture. So I knew um, I wasn't ever going to, you know, fully be comfortable in the mainstream culture as articulated, as you say, by the New York Review of Books, which I don't read either, and which I used to subscribe to as well and found myself just bored with it. So I, I felt uh, a sense that something in the late 90s was, was shifting. Um, I tried, uh, you know, I modeled myself after these public intellectuals like Lewis Mumford, uh, like Marshall McLuhan, like Daniel Borstein, individuals like that. Uh, and I wanted to publish books uh, in the New York uh, publishing world like they did. But by the time I came along in the, in the late 90s, the New York publishing world was no longer interested in that. Something was happening to them uh, and they were only interested in making money. And so I knew that they, would, they just weren't going to be interested in that type of thing. So I knew I was going to have to approach this as an intellectual nomad and be an outsider uh, looking at and observing all of this stuff going on from the outside. And so I floated around from one publisher to the next, and I was dissatisfied with most of them. And eventually I ended up, uh, when the new what I call the new media invasion came along, uh, it provided new outlets like Amazon's self-publisher, um, known as CreateSpace. I went on there as an experiment and decided to, you know, because I, I remembered that Nietzsche had self-published his first few books. Schopenhauer yeah, three, 300 had copies, and, uh, and 10 years later, he still had 200 copies in his warehouse. <laughs> yeah, the same thing with Schopenhauer. So I knew that it was, you know, it was a strategy that had precedent before with great people. So if it was good enough for them, why not? So I tried my hand at it, and I was much more satisfied with the results, both uh, financially and in terms of having complete sort of Stanley Kubrickian creative control over every single aspect of the of the book. So I didn't have to worry about because before I'd have publishers quibbling about my book titles. They always wanted me to change the title or change the titles of the interior chapters or remove this section or that section that might offend somebody. So I just got tired of all of that. And uh, so I published something like 20 books on Amazon. And so most of my books, I have 25 books now. The first five were with traditional publishers, one with a major New York publisher, Prager, who published uh, Dead Celebrities, Living Icons. Um, and I was just disillusioned with the whole thing and unsatisfied with it. But uh, taking creative control as an outsider uh, and going through Amazon and doing this on my own, by myself, in this new kind of DIY culture that's come along anyway, that's provided us with all the tools for the means of production, uh, it, it's been much more satisfying in that sense. So where we hang out is... Uh, pretty much online now. That's that's the new global cafe. Interesting. So let me, uh, speaking of online, uh, did you read that article in the New York Times uh, a few weeks ago, The Intellectual Dark Web? No, I didn't. Okay, so it talks about the uh, Sam Harris, Rubin, um, uh, Ben Shapiro, Jordan Peterson. So um, you know, but Peterson's got a mainstream book that's a major bestseller, but 
in general, these people are on YouTube and they get literally hundreds of thousands of views of each of their videos. And, uh, you know, the Rubin Report is a two-hour interview. And so these people are saying, you know, why go on CNN and get an audience of 20,000 uh, and, and get a four-minute soundbite where they'll chop you up and change what you say when you can go on YouTube, get 10 times as many viewers, and have two hours to, to talk in depth about anything you want. So I gather you've got a lot of YouTubes. What, are you, what, are you, what have you been addressing in your YouTubes? Right. YouTube has been, uh, yeah, like, like I say, nowadays, I don't think it can be, I think that's absolutely correct. Um, why bother with mainstream media outlets like CNN? It's going to be a waste of time anyway. Um, yeah, the new thing is that it's not just Gutenberg anymore. Uh, it's not good enough anymore to just have the printed books because nobody has time to read them anymore. So I spent the last 10 years also having this alternative medium with YouTube and doing YouTube videos. So I've got something like 600 now YouTube videos where I went on there uh, just as, since I wasn't getting invited to places to lecture, uh, let's say the way Campbell was at Esalen in his last years, I created my own forum and just said, well, let me just do this from my garage and I'll talk about Heidegger. Uh, Heidegger was very difficult for me to understand and I noticed uh, when I was trying to understand him that there were no good presentations from professors on YouTube. They were extremely hard to find and I thought, well, there should be all kinds of stuff on Heidegger, on how to understand Heidegger on YouTube. And there wasn't anything back when I was doing this in 2012. So I went on, I understood him. I figured him out, it took a long time, but I wrestled him through and then went on YouTube and started doing a series of videos on Heidegger. Then I followed that with a series of videos on Oswald Spengler's Decline of the West, you know, my all-time favorite book. And then just started gradually going through the history of modern philosophy from Immanuel Kant down through uh, Fichte, Schelling, and Hegel, on down through the French postmodern thinkers, books like A Thousand Plateaus by Deleuze and Guattari, uh, books like The Order of Things by Foucault, of Grammatology by Derrida. You know, so I went through and did all these free videos trying to help people to understand these thinkers, uh, to present them in a way that gets straight to the point, doesn't waste the listener's time. Uh, initially, you had a 15-minute time slot there. Uh, so get in and get out, uh, unlike professors who wobble and waffle and take forever to get to the point. And I just got very frustrated with them. So yeah, you know, and most of the followers that I have, most of the people, I wouldn't even have an audience if it wasn't for social media. Most of the people who friend me on Facebook and on Twitter have come to my work, not from books, but from watching those YouTube videos. So yeah, well, without YouTube, I, I probably wouldn't even have an audience at I'll all. Bet, I'll bet That's you get 10 times as many viewers of your YouTube as you do from a sales of a book. Way more. Yeah. It's like you say, in my case, it tens of thousands of views. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Cool. And, and, a, and a good book. If a book sells a thousand, that's a big deal. That is now. That's a very big deal. Um, yeah. So since I mentioned a few of these uh, people, uh, maybe you've been following the Jordan Peterson phenomena and have some thoughts about what he's doing and why he's become, pardon the word, so hot. Well, there was, I, I think that um, I had a friend, uh, uh, the Los Angeles poet, uh, Michael Aaron Kamens, is a close friend of mine, and he had read Peterson's very obscure, Peterson only has two books, the, the one popular book that you just mentioned, 12 Rules for Life, I think it is, and then this earlier one called Maps of Meaning, which is very obscure and difficult to read, uh, that he wrote years ago, it's huge, 
And this friend of mine told me, you know, you ought to, he'd been telling me for years, you ought to read this book and then go on and do a series of YouTube videos about it. And I kind of ignored it, didn't pay it any attention. And then Peterson uh, hit the spotlight when there was a big uh, furor over his refusal to bow to political correctness regarding the use of, of certain kinds of gender neutral pronouns uh, in Toronto. He's a professor uh, at the same university Toronto, uh, in Toronto that McLuhan taught at. And uh, he's a professor, been a professor there and a, psycho a practicing psychologist for a long, long time uh, before he hit the spotlight with this big furor over refusing to use uh, gender-neutral pronouns. Uh, just so I decided, yeah. uh, before he hit, the, hit it big with that viral confrontational video, he was for several years recording his classroom lectures and doing special That's lectures right. and putting them on YouTube. Uh, right. And then when this incident happened, his following exploded. But like you, he'd been just putting his videos up there. Right. For a long, long time, I, I saw those videos. And he's a very good uh, lecturer in, in classrooms, very good at motivating students uh, with these narratives. And so I read Maps of Meaning. I did a, a YouTube. That's his first book, his main first theoretical book, Maps of Meaning. Um, so I did a series of YouTube videos analyzing a, a bunch of it, not, not the whole book. But uh, truth be told, I, it was very boring to me. Because all of this stuff is stuff that I already knew having come out of the background of Carl Jung and Joseph Campbell, which is basically what it is. Um, Eric Neumann, The Origins and History of Consciousness. I, I'd already read all that. I knew all that. And basically Maps of Meaning is another version of the hero myth, the hero's journey from, uh, you, Jordan has it that you move from the sphere of the known to the unknown and you conquer the unknown and it becomes the known again. It's basically the hero's journey all over again. And it didn't interest me much. I, nothing in it was new to me. But I think that a generation of millennials, you know, 20 year olds and young 30 year olds have come along who lost all this knowledge, I think. A lot of them have never even heard of Joseph Campbell, if you can believe that, or Carl Jung. And along came Peterson. And uh, for them, for that generation, I think that um, he reactivated all those mythical narrative structures and got them enthused about it. Um, I mean, a lot of it appeals, there, there's controversy here though, because a lot of it appeals to the so-called alt-right. Uh, and a lot of these kids are alt-right and they like Peterson because he empowers them, empowers them as uh, men uh, seeking power who feel that they've been castrated by feminism, for instance, uh, and they feel empowered and they, they like that he's against political correctness. So they've sort of adopted him as this totem icon. I don't know how comfortable he is with that, though. I don't think he cares much for the alt-right. I don't think that that interests him much. He's certainly against political correctness, but I think alt-right stuff makes him nervous. But nonetheless, they've adopted him. So, you know, he's this big figure now on, uh, on the web. Just, uh, speaking of, um, of uh, making your way through a book and doing YouTubes about it, I see you've started uh, Camille Paglia's Sexual Personae, and Campbell's Mass of God. So let's start with Camille Paglia. And so it's interesting when you say, I don't know if young people have heard of Joseph Campbell. <clears throat> Most of my faculty colleagues, they all have PhDs, have heard of McLuhan, but none of them have read McLuhan. And certainly none of them have read Campbell. So, yeah, these things fade away, and, and we need to be reminded and I, I'm wondering how many feminists today have not read uh, Sexual Personae. 
So tell us who Camille Polly is and why you're doing a series of YouTubes on her first book. Yeah, her first book, Sexual Personia, took her a long time to write it and get it published. I think she was working on it as her PhD dissertation under um, Harold Bloom. And so she comes out of that world, uh, out of the New York uh, sort of East Coast uh, literary world. And she finally got it published in the early 90s by Vintage, and it came out and became a bestseller. Um, so it's her first main work. It's a very large, long work. And I went back to it because I find uh, Paulia's brand of feminism to be refreshingly um, unconventional. She got into a lot of trouble with feminists, with, with traditional uh, originary feminists, but also the third generation feminists. That she, she got into a lot of trouble with them. She, they don't like her because she loves men. And so she's this paradox of even though know, she's a lesbian. <laughs> exactly right. And, and so she loves men, and she she recognizes that uh, without men, as she puts it in the first chapter of the book, we'd all still be living in grass huts. Now that's a quote from her as a feminist. So she thinks that men are the originators of civilization. They've created it, not just Western civilization, but civilization as a whole. They've created it. They've brought it into being. And of course, women have made great contributions to all of this, but it's largely been a sublimation of what she calls male lust. Uh, the male sex drive is something that is what she calls Dionysian. Uh, it's very difficult to control. Rape is something that is a, a natural occurrence. And, and society, she says, uh, she's not a, a Rousseauian, she's a Saudian, she says. Society is what protects women from being raped. Uh, it's not the cause of men's deviations. It's not pornography, pornographic fantasies that's causing men to rape women or to want to rape them. It's their natural urge. And society exists as the sort of barrier to keep things civil and prevent uh, stuff like this from happening. You know, like you got with Cosby, you know, the, the insanity of that. That's what civilization is designed to prevent. And so it creates this Apollonian, she appropriates these structures from Nietzsche, the Apollonian and the Dionysian, which Nietzsche originated in The Birth of Tragedy, his first book published in 1872, just as the Franco-Prussian War was coming to an end. And, but his terms were used in an aesthetic context uh, to be applied to a discussion of Greek tragedy and how and why it worked where there was a perfect balance between Apollonian uh, or Apollonian form and structure and beauty versus Dionysian terror and the, the myth of the sacrifice, um, you know, the sacrifice child and the Dionysian mysteries who is torn to pieces by these Bacchans. Uh, but these were in perfect balance in Greek tragedy. So she takes these terms and reappropriates them to contemporary civilization and says that society is basically Apollonian. It creates a series of restraints that keeps the id in check. She's very fond of both young and Freud, not so much of Campbell. I, for some reason, Campbell rubbed her the wrong way. But she liked Young and Eric Neumann and Freud. And um, the Dionysian element is something that, that keeps coming back in. And she has this whole idea that modern popular culture, especially things like rock and roll, is a resurgence of the pagan, a resurgence and a return of the Dionysian pagan energies that the church uh, existed. She's Catholic. She's Italian Catholic, comes out of that background has existed forever to repress, but it's now coming back. And so she sees herself as the sort of neo-paganist, uh, very unusual type of feminist uh, who says that, uh, you know, women should stop blaming men for their problems, take power for themselves, assert themselves, be responsible, but stop blaming men for their problems. And so she's, she's very different. Uh, I, I just, 
I'm a, yeah, so I'm working my way through sexual personae on the YouTube videos, and I'm, I'm having a blast with it. It's, it's very entertaining. Great. Are you, do you think that, uh, do you see any evidence of a resurgence of an influence by her? Um, not so much, I don't think. I, you know, Peterson likes her, I think. I don't know how much of her he's read. There, there's a YouTube video of the two of them talking in dialogue yeah. with each other. They've both read a lot of the same sources, you know, with Carl Jung and Freud and Nietzsche and uh, so forth. Um, so they have a lot in common. Um, but not, I don't know. I don't see a big resurgence of her. So far, the videos that I've done are very popular, and a lot of people have thanked me for, for doing them. Great. So <laughs> getting to something... Um... I mean, sexual persona is quite a quite a big chunk to get through. But now you're doing Campbell's Mass of God. So let's tell our audience what is uh, what is Mass of God, and uh, how long is it going to take you to get through it? Right. This is my current YouTube series, and um, my ambition is to get through all four volumes of the Masks of God, chapter by chapter. So it would end up being. Uh, you know, like I did with Spengler's Decline of the West, I did every single chapter, both volumes, and it ended up being like 60-something videos. So it'll probably be in that ballpark. And what the Masks of God is, is uh, Joseph Campbell was a comparative mythologist and a popularizer. He, he also was not interested in going through academe, uh, so he was an outsider. Uh, he spent his career, he didn't have a PhD, and he spent his career teaching at Sarah Lawrence College, a private uh, women's uh, college in New York. And uh, so he was the originator and popularizer of what he called the hero's journey, which his great book, The Hero with a Thousand Faces, came out in 1949, in which the hero is a character who uh, suddenly gets a call to adventure. He's in a situation that's uh, the norm, the status quo. It's boring. You know, Luke Skywalker on the farm uh, and then the droids arrive from the heavens and one of them projects the message of Princess Ling. Princess Leia saying, come save me, help me. That's the call to adventure. So he's off on an adventure. The hero leaves the known world, goes through uh, the world of, uh, uh, of risk, what Nassim Taleb uh, would call risk, the risk world. The underworld is the, is the realm where you take huge risks. You don't know if you're going to make it through this thing or not. So you go through the road of trials, down into the belly of the whale, and you find the thing that's been missing from society, the thing that's been overlooked underestimated, not taken seriously by the society, but which the society is in need of. Uh, so you find it and you bring it back to the village and uh, it's like bringing rain, uh, rain back to the wasteland and you get a greening and uh, the society thrives and moves on and waits for the next hero. So that's the hero myth. And that was his first big book. And then um, <clears throat> he spent a number of years as he was moving into his 50s, getting along in years, um, decided to go to India and visit India. He'd been a huge fan of Indian uh, mysticism. His mentor had been the German Indologist Heinrich Zimmer, uh, whose posthumous writings he had helped edit. Uh, so he knew Indians, uh, the history of Indian philosophy and spirituality very well. So in around 1954, 55, he went on a journey to Asia, first to India, then to Japan. He was a bit disillusioned by his experiences in India because everyone was, you know, Gandhi had just been driven out. Everyone was interested in politics and patriotism, and he wanted to hear, uh, you know, about mysticism, about Brahman, not about, you know, Bakshish. Uh, and so he was very disappointed. But when he returned, he decided to start examining 
the different domains of spirituality in the world, and he identified four distinctly different domains. You have the Chinese domain uh, in Asia, where the primary figure is Lao Tzu, the wandering sage who learns the mysteries of the Tao. And then in India, the primary figure for him became the Buddha with eyes closed. The world is a dream, something that we turn away from, recognize it as Maya or Sangsara as illusion and disengage from it. Then there's the, uh, the zone that comes in the middle, the Levantine zone, which is the uh, Judeo-Christian Islamic cultural zone in which the primary figure is Job, submission. Job uh, ends in the book of Job by submitting to the wrath of Yahweh. Uh, who basically bullies him into submission. And so this becomes, you know, bowing down on your knees to God becomes the Judeo-Christian world. But in the West, starting with the Greeks, uh, we have the idea of Prometheus, um, where Prometheus, as he, in Aeschylus's play, Prometheus Bound, says, I could care nothing for Zeus. He can do as he likes, you know. Um, so we get this idea that in the West, um, we're interested in stealing the fire from the gods, taking away the gods' magical accoutrement, you know, his thunderbolt, let's steal his thunderbolt and put it under the microscope and examine it. How does this thunderbolt thing work? Let's steal it from Zeus and appropriate it for ourselves. And uh, lo and behold, now we have missiles. Um, so now, so it's all about, in the West, it's been about translating, stealing the secrets from the gods uh, and translating it into fact on the technological plane. Now we can fly. Daedalus invented wings, uh, but we've stolen his technology. Now we can fly. Now we have the, the actual technological means for flying. So the West has had a very different mission from these other civilizations. And so the Masks of God goes through in four volumes and examines the differences between these four great creative domains. The first volume that I'm going through right now is called Primitive Mythology, which is not a very PC title nowadays. Nowadays, the book would have to be called Aboriginal Mythology, not Primitive, because Primitive has the connotation that these people are savages, or, which was the old connotation. We don't think of them that way anymore. But it would have been called Aboriginal mythology, and it would have just been about the tribal myths, uh, which Campbell saw as the originating myths. The, the, the first peoples on Earth were tribal, going all the way back to the Paleolithic. And so he examines the myths of shamanism and the agrarian myths of planting and worshiping the Great Mother and the myth of the sacrifice. Then in the second volume, in Oriental mythology, he moves into an examination of uh, the great Asian myth cycle, starting with Sumer and Egypt and then traces the migration of those myths to the East. The third volume is Occidental Mythology. Occidental is an old term, uh, which most people now probably don't know what it means. It means the West, the Western Occidental tradition, and those myths. And then finally, in the fourth volume, a Creative Mythology examines myth as he sees it in the Northwestern, what Spangler called Faustian civilization, which is different from the Greeks, um, and analyzes how the myths in this tradition have been essentially have come out of our literature, not so much out of the church, which he sees as this false formation over the Faustian civilization that isn't authentic to its own native Scandinavian and Celtic traditions, where it was all about the grail quest and the myth of the individual going out into the forest and seeking to find for himself uh, what his own life uh, individuation process might be. And so he traces that myth and he calls it creative myth. We create our own myths in uh, the Northern European West. It, it's these, this is creative mythology. Each individual has to find his or her own myth uh, for him or herself and actualize it. And so this civilization has been very different from the myths that have been provided mostly in the past by the institutions. Institution, the, most of the myths have been institutional myths provided for the civilization as a whole. 
uh, for those other three uh, great creative domains. But uh, Faustian Civilization is a little, little bit different. Interesting. So these books are over 500 pages each. My mother once read them. It took her four years. She'd read one, then she'd follow up on the footnotes and references, and then reread it, and then go on to the next one. <laughs> right. So Yes, I've spent really, years reading them and rereading yeah, them uh, over and over service. again. That's how I started. This, this Reading the Masks of God, I think, was uh, just coming out of college as an undergrad, what was how uh, my intellectual career began. Uh, looking up all of his references, uh, you know, if he mentions the Spengler fellow over and over again. So I got to I got to go find Spengler and see what's a, what Campbell thought was important about him. And then that changes my whole intellectual horizon, uh, the decline of the West, this idea that civilizations rise and fall in terms of predetermined life cycles and that our civilization is actually uh, at the tail end of a cycle that began in the Middle Ages and is now about where the Romans were in the time of the disintegration of the Republic and the rise of the first triumvirate. Um, that's very fascinating, where the empire is being formed and worked out. And so I found that very fascinating. And then so, you know, I had to dig up Nietzsche, I had to dig up Kant and Schopenhauer, all of Campbell's influences. And then that just ramified and spread out like a rhizome and just kept ramifying and ramifying until pretty soon I had exhausted the field of myth studies and moved on into other areas like media studies and so forth. Let's... Uh... Just focus on Spengler for a minute, and uh, since you've got these 60 videos that our listeners can follow up with, uh, what what is uh, Decline of the West all about, and what um, why was it so popular in the 1920s, and what might its relevance be for us today? Right, so uh, it's in two volumes. Uh, Spengler also was not an academic. Uh, he was a high school teacher. He did have a PhD. Um, his PhD was in Heraclitus, I think. Um, but he just didn't like academia. He was, he was fine being a high school teacher. He enjoyed that. But he wrote Decline of the West to, when he got home from teaching it every night. He was working on Decline of the West. Volume one came out in 1918, just as World War I was ending. And it became a huge bestseller. Up till then, he had been dirt poor. He was about 40 at the time that it was published. Um, so he was happy to make a lot of money from it because uh, he'd been dirt poor and living off of various, you know, just his high school paycheck and so forth. But he had a lot of health problems like Nietzsche did, migraines and so forth. So it was a big struggle for him to bring it into being. But basically, the essence of it was that um, he saw, Spengler saw civilizations as uh, analogous to gigantic plants. And in this respect, he was thinking of Goethe's essay on the metamorphosis of plants, where Goethe talks about the fact that uh, the Upplanza, uh, which is the sort of platonic Plato's idea of plantness, that every plant goes through a series of predetermined stages, and it has a limited uh, number of years uh, through which it evolves through those stages. And it's already predetermined in the seed. Um, and so Spengler applied that model to civilization and said, well, what if it's the case that these great high civilizations, and he names nine of them, uh, the Babylonian, Sumer Babylonian civilization, the Greco-Roman civilization, India, China, Mesoamerica, uh, Russia, and uh, the what he calls the Arabian Magian civilization and the, the Northwestern Faustian civilization. So there are nine of these behemoths. Each one seems to have a creative period of about a thousand years. They can last like China and India did way past that for, you know, those civilizations go on for like 3000 years. But really, uh, those latter 1500 or so years are repetitions 
of stereotypes and cliches that were worked out in the initial phases of the first thousand years of the civilization. So you get a pre-culture phase. There are four distinct phases to each of these civilizations, a pre-culture phase, uh, which is disorganized and not coherent based on uh, tribalism, heroes like the Mycenaeans uh, fighting and working out in their fortress cities. Uh, Charlemagne, this is the period in the Northwest of Charlemagne and so forth. Then something coheres and crystallizes all of a sudden. A certain uh, death cult comes into being that's connected with a very specific religious worldview. And that religious worldview opens up the culture phase of the civilization. And the culture phase, uh, the culture phase, has an early phase and a late phase. So that gives you three phases. And then you move into the tail end of the civilization, which he called the civilization phase, the late phase, the megalopolitan cosmopolitan phase the imperial phase that each one of these civilizations ends by declining into. And so the difference between culture and civilization is that the culture period in all of these civilizations is motivated by metaphysics. It's motivated by metaphysics first in religion. Uh, and every one of these civilizations, contrary to, to someone like Sam Harris, who thinks that religion is worthless and a waste of time and can be rationalized away. He's dead wrong about that. All of these civilizations have been, come into being because of religion. If these religious insights had not taken place, we wouldn't have any of these civilizations. So religion is the DNA which codes for the phenotypical characteristics that make civilization possible. All of its characteristics, from the way people behave, to the way they dress, to the narratives that they actualize in their lives, come out of religious visions, out of the minds, usually of one or two guys, a, a Mohammed or a Christ, or uh, you know a, a Goethe or a play, you know pe people like that, visionaries. So then the metaphysics then eventually moves into in the late period to a philosophical phase, and you get the great grand philosophical finishing up systems in Greece with Plato and Aristotle, who've moved out of the Homeric gods into the world of Platonic ideas and forms with Aristotle the Entelechies, or in Arabian civilization there's a movement from Muhammad in the Quran to eventually the great Arabian philosophers, uh, Ibn Khaldun and Al-Farabi and Avicenna, uh, who are heavily influenced by Aristotle, but they are great metaphysicians nonetheless. Then after them, it, it gets pretty quiet, and there's this reversion back uh, in that civilization to religion. But the Ottomans come along, and the Ottomans are pragmatists. Their inventions in that civilization are in things like gunpowder, in the sciences, in engineering, in mathematics. They didn't care much for metaphysics. Neither did the Romans. When the Romans came along to finish up classical Greco-Roman civilization, uh, most of their achievements were in the pragmatic realm. Great roads, aqueducts, and forums, huge forums, the Colosseum, gigantic amphitheaters. Everything is based on an actualization and gigantification of engineering and technical achievements for big crowds. Because now you have the phenomenon in the end stages of these civilizations, what Spangler termed the civilization period proper, of the cosmopolis. The city is now cosmopolitan, international, full of huge swarming populations that have come pouring in, uprooted from the land. A lot of these people are farmers who have lost their land. A lot of them have been conscripted into wars and have come back to return to find their lands gone. They come flooding into the cities looking for jobs. So now the cities have to provide them with jobs. The cities swarm, they get huge. You get Rome at the end of that civilization. You get New York and Paris at the, in London at the end of our civilization here, and Berlin. These are all very different modes from what had been the quiet, provincial, creative areas of, let's say, Athens, in contrast to Rome, 
or Goethe's Weimar, in contrast to Berlin. Uh, these were quiet provincial places that were nonetheless productive of grand metaphysical achievements. Those days are over. Now the problems become solving economic problems. How do we get food for all these people? Um, how do we make sure everyone's on the same page and there's been tr being treated fairly and equally and so forth? And then all of this winds up. Spengler's final predictions then are all of this winds up with the coming in of the Caesars and the politics of force. You get emperors in China. You get Qin Shi Huangdi coming in and establishing the Qin Empire, after which China is named, uh, unifying all of China with a universal state. Uh, you get uh, the great new empire in Egypt coming in and finishing off Egyptian civilization with its imperial phase. And these pharaohs now are like emperors, like the Roman emperors were, who come in, dis dismantle the republic, get rid of all forms of ideology, and everything just becomes about uh, the struggle for power, zoological power struggle comes in with these emperors at the end. Ashoka in India comes in, unifies and all of India and creates a universal state in India. So every, in the Ottoman Empire for, for the Arabian civilization. So every one of these civilizations ends with these huge cosmopolitan empires that then, uh, according to Spengler, is simply their thermodynamic end state. And they, you can't do anything creative with them anymore. All they can do is repeat stereotypes that they've already established in their culture periods. And so another civilization has to come along that starts the cycle all over again for, for Spengler. That's the only kind of new thing that comes along after all of this. Um, so that's Spengler. And uh, oh, Volume no. 2 came out in 1924, and he just became famous all over Europe with, with this idea. So let me ask you a question. You look at someone like uh, this guy named David Deutsch, one of the founders of quantum computing, and... His most recent book is The Beginning of Infinity, and he's a technological optimist. Uh, similarly with Ray Kurzweil, the singularity is near, um, and they talk about uh, the merging of artificial intelligence with human intelligence, uh, putting sensors and chips all over the solar system, uh, so that the ex technological expansion and development is inexorable. And I'm looking at it from a Spenglerian point of view of um, it's like a tree that doesn't live forever. It's going to get old and fall over. Uh, how do you see um, Spengler playing out in our world today in this sea of technology? Okay, John, can, can you hear me okay? It, it says yeah. I'm having an internet connection problem. Am I coming through okay? Oh, it sounds good here. Okay. Uh, so once again, uh, re rephrase the question about Kurzweil. Um, the technological optimists like Kurzweil say, Kurzweil looks at Moore's Law and says the doubling of computer power actually begins back in the late 1800s with relay switches. And... It's not just, uh, you know, transistors on silicon. But once you have an information technology, it inexorably has an exponential growth in uh, capability, and he sees no end to that growth. You have notions like a Dyson sphere, where you build a sphere around your sun to capture all of its energy. Um, you sprinkle... Uh, 
sensors and robots all over the solar system, et cetera, et cetera. And these people have no mythological sense of culture as an organism which can die from old age uh, through an internal process, even in the context of all of this technology. What do you see, on the one hand, uh, the Spenglerian model sees us coming toward an end period, the technological model sees us as only just beginning. Where do you see us? Right, so if, if you look on Spengler's charts, um, especially like his chart of the description of the final days of the Roman Empire, um, it has a series of sub-phases. I, I think there's like three of them. And he says we're only just now, his prediction was, right around the year 2000, the West should be about where Rome was uh, with the formation of the first triumvirate with, with Caesar, Crassus, and Pompey. Um, so, but the sub-phases are, one of, I think the second sub-phase is later as the empire moves on, it shifts into gigantism and colossalism. And this is when you get the creation of huge uh, forms of architecture and engineering, like the Colosseum, for instance, and the huge forums. And uh, in Egypt, you get the Memnon Colossi and Ramses uh, II's great huge statues that he built everywhere. The, the technology gigantifies. It has one last huge sunset effect before it goes quiet, and we're not there yet. And so oh, good. these guys so like Kurzweil and company, maybe, <laughs> you know, they may be, indeed, maybe we will do these things, build Dyson spheres around the sun. And then it, by the time we get to that point, then it'll be the technological gigantism period, uh, because we have yet to achieve this period of colossalism. How is it, how can it possibly get any bigger than this? And maybe these guys are right. It'll, it'll extend to engineering achievements within the solar system. That'll be the, the Roman, the neo-Roman equivalent of their gigantism phase. But Spengler's final prediction, though, is that um, every technology dies with each one of these civilizations by the time they cycle through all of this. And it may take a few centuries. Um, he says the uh, Faustian technology will one day lie in ruins. Uh, it's roads as dead as the Roman roads. It's in the... Its ruins will look like the Colosseum looked, uh, you know, to late antiquity with cows grazing in it. It's all going to just burn itself out eventually anyway. And so um, we just haven't reached that stage yet. There, there's a few centuries left to fulfill this thing. Probably, oh, now, my guess is, is five more centuries of this uh, before we get to that phase. Okay. where we, you know, Yeah. But it doesn't burn itself out due to ecological disaster. It burns itself no. out out of... The same reason that any creature gets old and dies. That's right. That's Spengler's prediction, exactly. Yeah. Right. Do you think he's right? Yeah, I do think he's right. I, I, I think so. I, um, I wrote a book called The Age of Catastrophe where I, I sat down and studied. I know we differ on this, but uh, uh, I sat down and studied uh, global warming, and I wondered if there was anything to it because I didn't you know, care for it or didn't worry me or bother me. But I was I was shocked. I sat down and I read a whole bunch of books about it, and I was shocked. And it looks pretty much like the rise of the sea levels is is unstoppable at this point. All all the ice is going to melt, and it's going to take about five centuries to do that. And once it does that, all of our coastal cities will indeed be submerged. They'll be sticking out of the water like New York in the end of AI. That's the future. I think that's what it's going to look like in five centuries. So this whole thing is going to have to be rethought anyway. You know, we're going to have to have new kinds of floating cities. 
You know, you've got these uh, Dutch seasteaders right now. I just came back from the Santa Fe Interplanetary Conference where I watched them give a presentation on these Dutch seasteaders talking about uh, the use of floating cities that are modular. You can add units to them, subtract them, and they will be able to float and uh, grow as large as the population needs to grow as these sea levels rise. And so indeed that may become one of the, the, the modes of polyspheric habitation for future inhabitants of these rising waters and uh, rising temperatures. So either way, I mean, it's consistent with, you know, Spangler does have, he does suggest in the last chapter of volume one that the technolo the thing about Faustian civilization is that it overstrains the planet's resources and becoming the planet's first global civilization, sooner or later it's gonna exhaust the resources because it's putting so much stress on the planet as a whole uh, that it, you know, that can't go on forever, that kind of tension. So right. sooner or later, it's going to exhaust itself in, in doing this. All right. So listen, we have uh, just a few more minutes, and there's a subject that you've given me an assignment to work on in hypermodernity. So uh, quickly tell us what hypermodernity is, and then maybe in some future discussion we'll pick up on that and some more of these topics. Right, hypermodernity is <clears throat> is a concept that um, the Los Angeles poet Michael Aaron Kamins and I have been discussing for many years. Um, we had been talking about this back in like 2011, 2012. I had been looking at his poetry as something new. He comes out of the beat tradition, but the poetry is very new, very different, very odd and unusual. And I started thinking about uh, what I knew about postmodernity and the books that I'd been writing up to that point. I'd written The New Media Invasion in 2011, and then in 2012, The Age of Catastrophe, then in 2013, Art After Metaphysics. And I started to realize that maybe all those books were writing about the same thing, that I was capturing a tectonic plate shift that had, had taken place in the mid-90s, right around 1995, uh, in which, uh, indeed, our culture became digitized. Everything shifted into digitization. Um, and there was a professor whose book I encountered, Alan Kirby, who wrote a book called Digimodernism. A digit referring to digital, but also to digits in the use of fingers on keyboards and so forth. It's a very clumsy phrase. That's the only problem with it. But he too suggested that right around 1995, postmodernity had come to an end and something different uh, had come in. Something totally digital had come into uh, to market. He marked it with the movie Toy Story as the first all digital movie in, in 1995. But <clears throat> I mark it with the National Science Foundation uh, turning the internet over to the public. That happened in 95. And gradually it was this process of folding up the entire culture and putting it inside of uh, the internet, putting it inside of hyper-dimensional phase space in which everything becomes digitized. And so whereas postmodern technology had been electronic but analog electronic, uh, everything has shifted. You know, dark room in photography, there's the dark room is gone. Everything takes place inside the camera. Uh, there's no contact. The hand has no contact. Uh, it's very abstract with the medium. Same thing with film and celluloid. Celluloid became it's gone now. It's, it's been replaced in the early 2000s by the Matrix. So it exists entirely inside the Matrix. Shopping malls are disappearing. They're, they were the primary landscape of postmodernity from 1956 in a diner in Minnesota with the first uh, Victor Gruen's first shopping mall. It was the the retail, the great postmodern retail space uh, that I grew up in, where you could go and hang out in. All that disintegrated. Uh, now we have all these ghost malls everywhere because everything has folded up, and the world interior of postmodernity 
is no longer the shopping mall, it's the internet. So everything's gone inside the internet, including our sense of subjectivity. So everything, so I'm calling this hypermodern because even though the, I didn't invent the term, but nobody used the term clearly. I looked it up and there are no clear definitions of it. So I wrote a blog a paper uh, piece uh, a few months ago uh, and it seemed to hit a nerve. People seemed to like it and seemed to recognize hypermodernity because it suggests everything is being pushed to excess. Everything is hyper, as in a kind of hyper cultural hyperthyroidism, where everything is just being pushed to excess. We have an abundance and an excess of everything. It's the very opposite of a dark age. And it's very different from postmodernity. It doesn't have the same kind of ironic, uh, satirical smirking at sincerity or at grand meta narratives. Those can be brought back in now. Religion doesn't have to be tossed out and delegitimized anymore. You just plug it in, turn it on, and give it a website. And every, anyone who wants to be Christian, Buddhist, fine, let them have it. Plug it in, turn it on. Let them go to their website. So everything is included in hypermodernity. Everything is there uh, that has been uh, there before can now be used, whether it's, it doesn't have to be, nothing has to be delegitimized at all. So hypermodernity folds everything up inside of it and it's a new thing, it's where we're at right now. The individual has come unplugged from all social formations. Marxism is dead, communism is dead. There's something like five communist states left. They're dying. Nobody really takes communism seriously anymore anyway. Uh, as Mark Fisher writes in his very hypermodern book called Capitalist Realism, where he says that nobody would ever even bother nowadays even seriously suggesting an alternative to capitalism. Uh, Marxism is a joke. Nobody really thinks you can implement Marxism as a functional alternative to capitalism. That, those days are gone. That's over with. We're all pretty settled now on this idea globally and planetarily that capitalism is it. That's where we're at. There aren't, because the part of the problem is with hypermodernity, with the unplugging of the individual from social formations, uh, there is no sense of a we anymore that could rise up to overthrow anything. Like the German... Uh, Korean theoretician Bung Chul Han says, um, it's a swarm of eyes. It's a narcissistic swarm of individuals plugged into cyberspace, uh, cyberspace with their avatars. And that's the new sense of subjectivity. That's where we're at. And, and indeed, I think this is a whole new horizon. It's very, there's a very different feel to me from postmodernity. So I think something new is, is happening and unfolding here with all this. Cool. So uh, for why don't you give us three or four of your books and three or four of your YouTubes that our listeners can go to and website where you post so that if people want to follow up on this conversation, can find more of your stuff. Okay, my website is uh, culturaldiscourse.com, and it's cultural with, with a hyphen, cultural-discourse.com, where I post a lot of my essays. And then you and I together have an, an alternate, uh, in that same domain, we have cinema discourse, where John and I occasionally post uh, articles on film, various Not aspects of film. as much as we used to. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, it's been, it's been a while. Uh, cinema discourse and cultural discourse. And then um, my four most popular books are Dead Celebrities, Living Icons, um, which I published in 2010, The New Media Invasion. Uh, in 2011, where I think I was unconsciously already talking about hypermodernity, and I just didn't realize it. And in 2012, The Age of Catastrophe, uh, which looks at all of these ecological issues. And then in 2013, uh, Art After Metaphysics, where I talk about the situation with contemporary art and how to understand it. So there are those four books that are all available on Amazon, together with you know 
all 20 of my other books. Uh, and my most popular books are these scene by scene books where I go scene by scene, almost like the uh, literary equivalent of a DVD commentary where I talk about, for instance, Blade Runner scene by scene or Apocalypse Now scene by scene or Star Wars scene by scene. Cool. Those are all in there. Those sell very well. People like those a lot. They've been taught by professors in college classrooms. So those are doing very well. And then for YouTube, uh, I have a YouTube channel. Just type in the John David Ebert channel and the YouTube channel will come up with over 600 videos for you to shop from uh, to go through this global world interior and go shopping for uh, intellectual ideas. There's videos in there on everything from Kant and Schopenhauer down to Nietzsche, Hegel, Camille Paglia, Jordan Peterson. Uh, they're all in there. So you can go shopping for those. Those oh, are all me, free. Let me also recommend um, you did a, an online course on contemporary art a while back. And right. that's now all on YouTube. So if anybody wants to know what the hell's going on in art, uh, there's about, what, there's 60 short lectures, about eight minutes each. But you can work your way through contemporary art. Right, and you have to pull that up by typing in John David Ebert, Understanding Contemporary Art, because okay. for some reason it's, it's not on my YouTube channel. Um, it was uploaded by the school, so it's on their site. But all oh. 60 videos are on there and available for free. A complete hi a history of contemporary art from uh, you know, New York pop art and minimalism and land art going all the way down through today's contemporary artists like Damien Hirst, uh, Anish Kapoor, and uh, Odd Nedrum, individuals like that. Great. So anything else you want to leave our listeners with? No, I think that was pretty thorough, John. <laughs> that was a good overview. Okay, that was, that so was very enjoyable. This has been John David Ebert. And uh, you can follow him all over the web. This is John LaBelle. This is Visionaries. You find us here every Monday. And go look for this show and our other back shows at visionaries.podbean.com. Thank you and see you next week.